Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, tonight, we will be reading from my blog on the topic of a realistic look at the economic calculation problem. Um, my panel uh, consists tonight of few people you've already heard from before. Uh, Al does not seem to be at his computer yet, so we'll add him whenever we can. I'm going to go ahead and start then with uh, introductions. Um, first, we're going to start with a man who doesn't like to introduce himself. Say hello, Chibi. Hello. <laughs> um, next, we're going to bring up Aaron Moritz, also known as Say Days Ago. Uh, hi, how's it going? Not too bad, Aaron. Um, you're a little quiet on the mic. Other than that, um, you're great. Here, let me try that. That's better. better. Yeah, much better. All right. And um, Frank Lee uh, from the soon-to-be-coming-up show, The Sideshow. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Frank. Hi, this is Frank Lee. Uh, I'm Frank Lee So also. Uh, a lot of you know me from Z Radio as well. Right. Um, where can people listen to The Sideshow, or have you started it yet? Uh, I have had my first episode, which really accounted uh, for me reading from an article I'd just found earlier in the day. So I had little or no practice whatsoever with it. Uh, I had a second attempt at a show where I was planning to have Douglas Millett and Ted Marchilden from uh, Omega Garden International. And that didn't turn out too well. Ted cut kind of lost on the way to the show. And I, we were having difficulty getting it to where they could log in to be able to speak on the show uh, mm. itself. So a um, few technical problems, uh, which I'll be working on throughout this week, and uh, we should be having the next show, which we'll have them uh, on next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern right. Standard Time. No, That's excellent, then. Okay. Um, is there a URL or anything they can use? Um the easiest way to find my show, it's on TalkShoe, and uh, the the easiest way to find it really is just go on the forum, find me. My signature is the link to the show. All right. Well, that's easy enough. All right. Well, we have a long blog to go through today on the topic of uh, the economic calculation problem. Um, my motive on this uh, largely was because of the fact that people felt that uh, – um, I had not addressed it well enough when I was dealing with Stefan Molyneux. Um, the problem is, is that I answered him, but as is fairly typical with most Austrian economic, economic enthusiasts, uh, they're very uh, set in their ways, so to speak, and very dogmatic. So I decided to really get together and you know address the issue of the economic calculation problem a bit more directly. Uh, it's funny how people have come out of the woodwork, um, even just from reading my blog, and and how angry they get um, when you when you talk, you know, contradictory to the way their uh, free market gods speak. Uh, and it's it's interesting, you know. One of the quotes that we're going to get into in the blog actually kind of isolated it for me forever. Was one of the statements made by Mises himself, Ludwig von Mises, meaning um, in regards to this issue uh, of his own work. Um, we'll get into that as the show progresses, uh, but Brandy Hume uh, recently uh, released a series of videos, uh, pretty much a documentary, counteracting a lot of the free market arguments against the Venus Project, 
And it was amazing how they came out of the woodwork uh, to go after her for it. They get really upset when people challenge their dogma. So um, I guess we'll see uh, how this is received. Um, if it's in any fashion like it was as far as just my arguments on Facebook and such, I, I have no idea. I'm honestly getting to the point, though, that especially after my studies of the, the basis of the Austrian school and how unpopular it really is within mainstream economics, it basically uh, it, it's getting harder and harder for me to take the time to talk to these people, mostly because it's like talking to a wall. You, you can't really reason with them. Um, they've got it in their head that they're right, and this is why, and nothing you say will change their minds. So, But in any case, um, I'm going to go ahead and get into the blog. Uh, if you want, you can read along with us by going to the V Radio blog. You can go to my website, v-radio.org, or v-radio.org. Um, and click blog, and there you will see the blog we're going to be reading from now. <clears throat> a realistic look at the economic calculation problem. The economic calculation problem is at the core of the debate between free market advocates and socialists, and because a resource-based economy suggests distribution of resources to people absent a price tag, we find ourselves not only being labeled socialists, but the same arguments being leveled at us that are leveled at socialists. So we have the economic calculation debate, and at its core is the question, will we be able to efficiently distribute resources absent the price of mechanism? First, let's get some background on the positions of the Austrian free market school of thought, and then talk about how this relates to our own arguments on the subject. So how does the price mechanism supposedly function insofar as distributing resources? The idea behind the price mechanism is that in the market uh, market, resources will be given a value by the market. This value would be calculated based on the cost of production, which includes resources expended and labor. And then finally, consumer demand. The theory is that if a producer of a given product charges too much for that item, then no one will buy it, hence forcing the producer to lower the cost. Competitive forces also plays a part here, as rival producers of a given product will vie for dominance in the market by offering competitive prices. So breaking this down into an analogy, Bob produces widgets. Bob calculates a price based on the cost of the resources that were used in making his widgets, including how many he had to pay his employees, or sorry, how much he had to pay his employees at the widget factory. He of course wants to make a profit, so he charges a price that is above and beyond the costs involved in production. If he gets too greedy, then people instead may buy a rival product that has a lower price. So Mises and the other Austrian economists basically contend that this is the most efficient way to distribute resources, and in fact is the only way that would actually work. Let's get into why. From Wikipedia, Ludwig von Mises argued in, famous 1920, in, a, in a famous 1920 article, Economic Calculation in a Socialist Commonwealth, that the pricing systems in socialist economies were necessarily deficient because if government owned or controlled the means of production, then no rational prices could be obtained for capital goods as they were merely internal transfers of goods in a socialist system and not objects of exchange, unlike final goods. Therefore, they were unpriced and hence the system would be necessarily inefficient since the central planners would not know how to allocate the available resources efficiently. This led him to declare... 
that rational economic activity is impossible in a socialist commonwealth. More from Wikipedia. Without money to facilitate easy comparisons, socialism lacks any way to compare different goods and services. Decisions made with, uh, will therefore be largely arbitrary and without sufficient knowledge, often at the whim of bureaucrats. But what about the inefficiencies in the price system? Just how good of a job does it actually do when it comes to efficiently distributing resources? Let's take a look. Mises suggests that no rational prices can be reached without a price system. But are rational prices actually reached within a price system? No. And the reason? The entire price engine is driven by the profit motive, and profit by no means depends on rationality. First of all, let's talk about advertising. Advertising has evolved over the years into what amounts to outright brainwashing. They specialize in ensuring that consumers have irrational desires for products that they do not even need or are even harmful to them. The work of Edward Bernays in assisting the cigarette companies in their quest to give women the irrational desire to smoke is an example that I have frequently brought up on V-Radio. Documentaries such as Psy War and Consuming Kids really dig deep into the very dark reality of advertising and its ability to target our minds in a way that causes us to feel needs for objects that have no rational purpose. One such industry is the fashion industry, a never-ending cycle of convincing people that unless they wear certain clothing and more specifically are willing to pay a higher price for that clothing, they are worth less as a human being. The $3,000 handbags mentioned in Zeitgeist Moving Forward are just one of many absurd fashions that resources are devoted to. A company named Louis Vuitton, I'm probably saying that wrong, will also be happy to sell you a shoulder bag for $8,000, a pair of sneakers for $1,000, or a belt for $3,000. The price mechanism has attached to it elements of social stratification. This brings us back to the reason that Air Jordan shoes that were purchased at Foot Locker were somehow more valuable than those purchased at Kmart, solely because the person could afford to pay the higher price. It was therefore more fashionable. The fashion issue goes beyond clothing, accessories, cars, houses, etc. The entire system is designed to tell people that the higher price paid, the better. But we are not talking about the higher price paid, meaning the better the product. We are talking about an industry that convinces people that the higher price someone paid for, uh, the, basically the more value someone has as an actual person. The higher price that you're willing to pay for your goods, the better a person or the more successful a person or the happier a person you are. Uh, psychological and sociological research is done by advertising firms to plug their products into our self-esteem, our attractiveness to the opposite sex, and our status within society. If you're carrying an $8,000 shoulder bag, then it means you are somehow superior on a fundamental level to the person carrying a $30 shoulder bag. Looks like Al is finally here, so I'm going to add him to the call. At least whenever he picks up. <laughs> anyway, uh, the price system is subject to corruption in other ways. Planned obsolescence and perceived obsolescence of goods is also built into the system to ensure that people are forever in stores moving inventory. Products are made to break down or not to be easily fixable intentionally for the sake of profit. The price to fix a given product is set in such a way to artificially make it more expensive to simply repair an item than it is to buy an entirely new item. 
The price system creates the motivation to do all of this contradictory to the ecological and environmental impact of such wanton production. Because it is a system for an economy with profit as the motivator, producers of given products are encouraged to find as many ways to cut corners as much as possible when it comes to ecological safety of their products. Products are made without recycling in mind because a product that is easy to take apart to be recycled is in many cases easy to repair. This would allow the consumer to simply repair their products rather than buying new ones. The price system is um, the price system because it is based solely on the whims of consumers also permits the production of goods completely irrespective of the long-term effects of using up a given resource. The consumer at the counter of a store does not consider, nor are they encouraged to consider, the long-term implications of their purchases. What will buying all of these plastic products do to the environment? What if this useless junk I am purchasing is, it has resources in it that will be required for mankind's survival? What impact will the fact that I purchase a new iPod every year have on my grandchildren or their children? None of this is taken into account in the price system. Because you want to be able to offer your goods at the lowest possible prices, the price system also encourages worker exploitation. Walmart's goods made in sweatshop factories can be offered at a far lower price than products produced locally, and the profit-motivated price system will only serve to perpetuate this. Outsourcing to more and more desperate economies where people are willing to accept a lifestyle no better than conventional slavery. Another example of corruption of the price model is when businesses collude to sell a vital product at an ever-increasing price. Take the oil industry. The oil companies form a cartel to cooperate on what the price of gasoline should be. They agreed to compete by no more than a few cents at the pump. The benefit of this is that profits in all of the oil companies collectively went up to record heights. It was basically to the benefit of everyone in the cartel to see this happen. And because gasoline is not an optional commodity, they were able to get away with it. It was not as if consumers could simply choose not to drive to work. A further proof of the price mechanism's failure is that outside of the stores that sell these, right outside of the stores that sell these products, there are often homeless people lying on the street. People who could feed themselves for months if they had even a quarter of the money spent on a single item purchased at the prices above. When it comes to a system of allocating resources, the billions of people starving on this planet are a testament to the absolute failure of the market system to give any option to these people. There is no mechanism in the market or the price system that will distribute resources to these people despite the fact that technologically we could provide for them. When attacking any centrally planned system, see actually I think we're going to go ahead and pause there because um, I want to talk just first of all about the flaws in the price system itself. I'm going to bring on my panelists. I'm going to start with you, Chidi. Um, yeah, I guess just to comment on what you just read. Okay, go ahead. Um, well, I wanted to point out something with the uh, when you're talking about the the Nikes or the Air Jordans, I should say, and. Uh, um, how ad advertising um, makes people want things that they shouldn't or that that have no reason behind them, and I think there's there's something else to be said about that as well that has even an evolutionary logic to it that um, people will strive to move up the the pecking order as you would put it to garner 
social prowess and uh, to attract other mates. And, and there's sort of a logic to it from the female perspective for choosing a suitor. If you, you know, if a guy can afford to spend more money on some silly item, then obviously he's more likely to spend money on her. She'll feel more secure, things like that. It's very subtle, but I think there's some of that in there. And advertising just sort of directs it and guides that. But um, I don't know if that's entirely relevant, but I just felt like pointing that out. Um, no, that's fine. And I wasn't sure if you got to the I, the competitive, like what we were discussing earlier when we were talking about this blog and the assumption that competition will, will fix uh, corruption in, in this. Um, no, we haven't actually gotten to that that I'm aware of, but go ahead and you can converse about it. It's fine. Uh, it's fine. I, I can wait till later, till we've okay. discussed it more. All right. Um, now, Aaron? Um, the only thing I was thinking about when you were reading that was just how inherently coercive you have to be to participate in a price system. Unless, of course, you have laws against advertising or something, which goes against Austrian free market economics anyway. But, like, given what we know now about advertising, how could it not be coercive unless you somehow tried to stop people from doing it? And for people who talk about, you know, completely voluntaristic societies, having that element of coercion always there is something that I don't really see how they can reconcile. You know, what's really funny about that is, like, one of the comments that I got from somebody about this blog was that it was me boo-hooing about free associations and people who voluntarily choose to engage in commerce. You know, he said that about the, the sweatshop labor. He said that about... Uh, you know, just all the different things that go into the system. And it is interesting that they tend to forget that it is a coercive system. I can't choose not to participate um, if, unless I want to starve. You know, Yeah, you can't other. choose not to go to work. Like, not at all. It, yeah, you're forced. You're forced into it, coerced, whatever. Right. And then they tell you, well, you have the freedom to work wherever you want, as if, you know, which kind of leaves out the whole point that, um, employers don't really seek to create circumstances where they need us. And as we find the unemployment rates go higher and higher, your choices of where you work change and also in how you get treated. I remember very specifically working at a 7-Eleven and I told the lady that I needed one Sunday off a month for some of my extracurricular activities when I hired in and she said it wouldn't be a problem. Um, and then a, a few weeks later, she schedules me for that Sunday anyway. And I said, um, well, hey, didn't you say I could have this one Sunday a month? And she's like, yeah, I did. I also know you need a job. Um, yeah. You know, so there goes my choice. She knew that I couldn't find a job anywhere else. She knew that I couldn't just up and quit. So therefore, I was basically forced to not have any life outside of her store. Um, and that's basically the uh, it, that's a coercive element that is only going to get worse as the economy tanks. And when you think about it, uh, the preferred workforce that these people want uh, generally comes from the you know the sweatshop areas where people are so desperate for work. That's like when they say that's voluntary, I just want to vomit. You know, it's like yeah, they could choose to work for uh, slave wages or they could choose to starve to death. I mean, clearly there's free choice there. I mean, you know, the, yeah. choice, the choice to starve to death is definitely a choice, right? You know, it's it's so ridiculous. Um, any more from that, from that on there, Aaron? Um, no, I think I'm good. All right. 
Frank. Hey. You want to comment on what we've read so far, mostly about the, the flaws of the price system? Well, sure. I mean, well, not only is there all of this coercion that you run into, and not only are you forced, essentially forced into working or starving, you know, the, the two options, but also the price mechanism supposedly it balances out at some point, right, so that it rations resources so that you don't run out, except that when you include the motive for profit, guess what happens? <laughs> we start figuring, okay, well, if I can sell this many of this item at this price and make this much profit, then imagine how much more profit I can make if I can sell this many more of that same item. Right. And imagine how much more if I can do it at a cheaper price, right? So that I don't even really worry about the environment anymore because my profit, my motive for profit, and especially if I'm a part of a corporation where I'm subject to uh, answering to the whims of my investors and I have to legally, by law, it, uh, ensure that they get a profit uh, and that their profits go up, that they have ever-increasing profits. Now, what kind of motive is this or what kind of system is this when when you have an infinite motive for profit in a finite system of resources? And let's not discount the human equation in that because there are only so many people to buy those infinite resources that supposedly exist within this system. Right. Well, remembering, of course, that the just to just to point out, because um, I know this is already, I can hear it in my head that the, what the people are going to be saying is that the 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 issue of by law and you know being forced to be profitable would not happen in a free market, but it doesn't change the fact that the profit motive alone still would push any independent corporation or even just an individual entrepreneur to push for profits as much as possible because your investors don't want to invest in a company that's not showing profit. So even after right. the state, you're still going to have the same effect. But go ahead, Frank. Right. And not only that, but I mean, all right, define your terms is what I would have to say to those people. You know, what we live in right now is proposed to be a free market system. Mm -hmm. So how, what kind of a system would you propose that is still a free market, but not the free market as defined by the system? And also... Um, uh, just going back to that point that I was getting at before, the fact that you're uh, insisting on these perpetual profit, this this perpetual profit motion machine that has, insists on ever-increasing profits in a finite system, now you're – in order to continue increasing your profits, not only do you have to rely on infinite resources that you're dwindling away, but you also have to increase your population. Right. So – so all of this population explosion that people are complaining about so damn much is due to what? The motive for profit, the free market enterprise. Right. And that's – well, even uh, – you know, we don't live in a free market currently, but uh, the more we deregulate the economy, the, the more the wealth gap seems to grow. Um, and it's it's really out of hand even now. We'll be getting into the wealth gap a little bit into the next part of the blog. But um, Al, are you ready? Yes, I'm here. All right. All right. Well, do you want to comment on the flaws of the price system as far as efficiently distributing resources? 
Wow. <laughs> that's a that's a big one, huh? The one that they seem to keep uh, asking so much about. I think that to answer the question of how do we distribute resources without price mechanisms, can you can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, you sound fine. Go ahead. Um, first off, when we think of the word distribute or allocate, it automatically sounds complicated and brain-killing, right? They seem to enjoy throwing the whole package at once to see if we can come up with a magic solution, the ultimate solution. But as, as I always say, everything is not going to happen at once. Every solution needs to be implemented one by one in a scaling mode. This is what they don't really grasp. They think that everything will just change from one day to the next, if it does change. First, we need to place our necessities in categories. You know, primary resources, I mean, number one, the primary, the primary resources, such as food, first and foremost, clothing, shelter, medical assistance, running water, and uh, electricity. Number two, education, recreational activities, transportation, communication devices, the internets, personal items, and so forth. So, so they, uh, nothing is going to happen uh, from one day to the next. I mean, every, every solution we are proposing it needs to be implemented one at a time. Right. No, that that's very true. But I think that um, as far as like to be on topic, really, about what we're discussing here, it, it mostly has to do with the fact that they suggest that the price mechanism is an effective way to dole out resources. And the examples that I've been giving are basically to prove that that's just not the case. The eight thousand dollar shoulder bags. The funny thing is, is I looked at the website again where I got those prices from. And it was a website that was selling used versions of these products. Even a used right. version of this $8,000 handbag. I mean, I don't even know what the original would have been. Um, but, you know, the, the notion that that is in any fashion an efficient use of resources, you know, when you think of all the resources that go into $8,000 and what could be spent on it instead, um, obviously that doesn't work. Um, and... Uh, the other thing that I, I, they tend to say, obviously, is, well, cartels are impossible inside of a free market because somebody will break them. And I'm just like, you haven't really given any reason to say that it's impossible. You're just suggesting that somebody will eventually break them. The problem is, is that once these companies figure out that it's to their benefit to collude, then they will do it, just as the oil industry did. Um, and then they, they'll say, well, the state creates laws to make that happen. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but even absent any laws, there's nothing to stop a group of people from getting together and saying, we're all going to raise the price of gasoline. Um, right. there, you know, there really isn't. Uh, so those are just examples, I mean, uh, that, that come to mind. But basically, uh, we're going to get into it more as the, as the blog progresses. But the, uh, the notion that the, the price system is efficiently uh, dulling out resources is ridiculous, and the way that we end up using the resources is not efficient or in any fashion conscious, as I pointed out earlier, of the ecological um, impact of what you're doing. You know, you look at the mound of cell phones that's in China, uh, just as an example, you can see pictures of it, this giant mountain of cell phones, 
is an example of how the market system encourages waste because you, you know it's not really to their best interest to create a cell phone where all I need to do is replace the SIM card. You know, it's not in their best interest to create a cell phone that all I need to do is, you know, replace given components one at a time because it's more profitable for them to get together and create stuff that is, you know, in, in such a fashion that it encourages you simply to buy a whole brand new one. That's the plant obsolescence effect. There's a very good documentary about this called Pyramid of Waste. If you uh, look it up, um, you can get a dot sub version of it where there are actually English subtitles for the German in it. I strongly advise everybody to watch that. That's definitely required watching. And I threw this documentary right at the guys who were arguing with me about this on Facebook because they kept insisting that plant obsolescence and cartels were a myth. And this documentary laid it out in perfect detail with documented evidence that cartels are very real. Plant obsolescence is very real. Um, the, the main story of the whole thing was this guy trying to figure out if he could get a way to repair his printer. Um, and yeah, not that's only an excellent documentary. Yeah. Well, th at the end of the, at the end of it, it turns out that the printer was designed within, within its own software that after a certain number of prints, it would basically send out signals saying that it had broken, even though it was completely functional. And right. at the conclusion, they get, you know, he goes on the internet and he finds a Russian scientist has made a, a patch for the yeah. software for the printer to basically right. lie to the printer and tell it, no, you're brand new. And then the printer just went right on working anyway. And you the know, funny thing, real quick, Al, the funny thing about this is I showed that film to Stefan Molyneux. Um, and he, you know, because, because I said, well, you made a video supposedly debunking plant obsolescence or saying it was a myth. I'd like you to watch this. And when it was when he was finished watching it, he was like, "Well, well, yeah. Who makes a computer that to last a hundred years? That doesn't make any sense." <laughs> was no. Like, so you're not denying that plant obsolescence works or that it's real anymore? <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, well, I, I never denied it was real. Yeah, yeah he did. He called it a fallacy. <laughs> um, but it's driven by consumers." I'm like, "No, I guarantee you, the consumer wanted his damn printer. He didn't want to buy a new one." Exactly. Um, we want go ahead, Al. We want things to last, not to break up. You know, my I, we, uh, me and my wife are, uh, we have been uh, Mac users for a long time, and she has this iMac, you know, the one that is like a ball with a monitor on top of it, mm -hmm. and 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 about uh, two weeks ago, it started making the strangest sounds you could imagine. The the she was she's uh, for example she's listening to a song and all of a sudden the speaker starts to <laughs> and the sound it is it, it, it gradually it starts to get really really annoying and and very very loud and there's nothing you can do to unplug other than unplugging the uh, the speaker's cable and it, and I was and I was not surprised it, it automatically reminded me of of planned obsolescence. So basically, what they are doing is is putting a, a hidden software inside of the computer to to make sure that you will think that your computer is going is going crazy or something, right? And it right. starts making uh, the most annoying noise you can imagine. Jesus Christ! It, the, the, and it's so loud that the that the windows start uh, to shake. <laughs> we, we were. You're 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 not gonna believe it. I need to record that sound. It's so loud and it's so annoying. 
It's like it's like saying, "Hey, you need to buy a new computer right now." You crazy uh, broadcast citizen. Really, really annoying. So what? yes, on a future episode of E Radio, we will have the ugly sound of planned obsolescence. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, before we continue here on the blog, oh, that was another thing. Actually, I, I just dropped the link to that, uh, um, the dot sub version of that documentary into the chat. Um, you guys will be really surprised who gave me that documentary. It was actually uh, Storm Clouds Gathering um, gave me that documentary because it had convinced him about the realities of uh, planned obsolescence. So, um, in any case, uh, did anybody else have anything further before I continue on the blog? Oh, continue. Okay. Uh, yeah, I would like Go to ahead, say Frank. something. As long as we're on the uh, planned obsolescence thing, I had read recently in an article, and I really cannot place my finger on the link to that article right now, but I had read in an article recently talking about rechargeable batteries and the fact that these rechargeable batteries have a chip in them that tell them, including your cell phone battery, by the way, uh, that tells the battery... Um, you can only charge this much this time, and, and and it progressively charges less and less each time, according to the chip. And it's all programmed into the chip, and that this chip is there. It has a specific purpose. The chip is supposed to keep the battery from overheating or something like that. I, I don't know. Uh, from overcharging and, and ending up leaking battery acids all over the place. But effectively, what you end up doing is you end up programming it to wear out even sooner than it would naturally. Right. No, that's, you know, and I, after watching Pyramids of Waste, I, I totally believe you. Um, it's called the light bulb conspiracy, Pyramids of Waste, I believe. Um, and, uh, they talk about the fact that there's a light bulb that's been burning since, like, I think, 1901 in a uh, firehouse. And the light bulb's kind of a celebrity in the local area. And uh, basically, they talk about how the cartel, I forget the name of it now, but basically a cartel formed in the light bulb industry to slowly drag the life of light bulbs down. Um, and they would go after anybody uh, who who did not go along with it, and it was not a state organized thing. It was it was international. Um, they got companies from France, uh, you know, just different parts of Europe and the United States, all to agree that nobody would pick up a light bulb that lasted more than a thousand hours, um, because of the fact that the industry needs to keep things continually moving. Now, as this has to do with the price method, you're basically at this point dealing with the idea that. The economic calculation argument states that, you know, the price method is the most efficient way to deal out resources. But when we're expending resources to go out of our way to make sure that products don't last so that we can sell more products, that's another example of <clears throat> the money that could be made by corrupting such a system. So that being said, I'm going to go ahead and move on into further parts of the uh, blog. Um, now, we talked about the fashion industry. Uh Plant obsolescence. Um, now, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place, but I'm getting it now. Here we go. When attacking any centrally planned system, the Austrian economists point to examples such as the various instances of mass starvation supposedly created by centrally planned economies. 
They point to death camps and gulags as the inevitable solutions of failed centrally planned economies. That when scarcity exists, we will be forced to somehow depopulate. Of course, they leave out that a great deal of these death tolls were created by fascist regimes trying to stay in power. But they go on to heap praise on the market system with its price-based economies with an absence of death camps and gulags. They leave out, of course, that even in the free markets, there would still be huge pockets of poor and starving people. The death camps of the market system are places like Africa, where hundreds of thousands of people starve every day. The price system has no place for people who cannot find ways to be useful to people who have more. Basically, suggesting that centrally planned economies lead to starvation ignores the blatantly obvious truth that the market system does the exact same thing. But far more insidious is the, um, the entire time people are inclined to think that it is a fair system that is leaving all of these people to die, and even encourages people to think that it is somehow their fault for dying. If they just worked a bit harder or started their own business, they would be fine. They sell everyone the pipe dream that they too can be rich and famous if they just apply themselves. And this delusion helps everyone agree to be part of a system where 1% of the population has 40% of the wealth and where statistics are greatly against people who are not part of that 1% ever becoming part of it. It's ironic that the same incident of, uh, of the rules suddenly changing in the book Animal Farm that was supposed to be a story about communism applies just as well to people living in a capitalist system. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Mises and his disciples stated that centrally planned economies fail due to the fact that resources would be distributed according to the whims of bureaucrats, and that apparently instead we should allow resources to be distributed according to the whims of consumers, consumers whose whims are being controlled by a profit-motivated system. If we were talking about a world of infinite resources, this might work. But as was demonstrated earlier, the whims of consumers in a profit-motivated world are not by any means rational. And the fact that there is anyone anywhere who on a whim will buy an $8,000 shoulder bag while people are starving outside of the store they purchased it in is a testament that the price mechanism is not efficient at all and that rational prices are not being achieved. There is nothing rational about an $8,000 handbag, period. So let's look at some of the obstacles that Mises and Hayek suggest we will never be able to overcome. The knowledge problem. Will we be able to effectively get the information we need as far as the needs of our consumers within a society? Mises seems to think that this is an insurmountable problem, that we will never be able to get enough information to be able to make rational decisions about what to produce. This, like many other Austrian theories, is obviously way out of date. Information technology is vastly superior to anything that Mises would have even conceived of in the 1920s when he said this would be impossible. The other notion that is presented by Hayek is that people who uh, would have no incentive to share information that they have, which simply does not make any sense. Obviously, in a resource-based economy, the incentive is we want to eat, we want shelter, clothing, etc. So we share that information so that the system works. Another argument against Austrian economists from Wikipedia, quote, it has also been claimed that the contention that finding a true economic equilibrium is not just hard but impossible for a central planner applies equally well to a market system. 
As any universal Turing machine can do what any other Turing machine can, a system of dispersed calculators, i.e. a market, has no in principle advantage over one central calculator. Austrian economists emphasize that a central planner cannot have access to all of the necessary information, including local conditions, know-how, and changing individual preferences to feed into a central calculator. As I have already illustrated earlier, the price mechanism has many failures and is far too open to corruption. So they were never operating from any sort of superior system to begin with. As pointed out above, there is no special advantage to mankind operating as a mob of people making economic decisions based on whims. And the claims that any centrally planned economy would fail due to the lack of information is based on a completely out-of-date idea as far as what information any central planner would have access to. The idea that desires are infinite or irrational. This is another problem. This concept basically works on the assumption that people's desires are infinite and are not trackable or understandable, and this assumption is flawed. The needs of human beings are in fact calculable. And in fact, once all of the noise that has polluted the desires of mankind is gone, advertising, fashion, etc., deciding what to produce will be far easier. The reason it is hard to calculate now is because mankind has an inflated idea of what it needs that is based largely on the conditioning we are given through advertising from the earliest ages. This entire industry of convincing people to consume things they do not need will vastly change the amount of resources expended. I have already felt this as myself as my own consumption habits have changed once I became aware of the vast propaganda machine that was put in place to make people believe that the act of consumption in of itself was an expression of freedom. I watch now as people chain themselves to debt for endless amounts of junk that it is designed to be sure to fail as soon as it is paid off. My entire perspective changed on what I buy and why. There is no reason the rest of mankind will not experience this as well. So um, I'm going to go ahead and pause here again because next we're going to get into what's different and ask anybody in the panel if they have anything to add at this stage. Um, Chibi? Um, I'm still thinking about the desires infinite thing. I, I, in a way, I actually think there's some truth to that, but only from a certain philosophical perspective. Uh, like, in the sense that no amount of wealth will actually make you happy within itself anyways. Um, desires, I guess, could be infinite if they were, if infinity was in front of you and you could choose from infinite things, but... Well, right, but the funny thing about that, as we found out with the Tammy Strobel interview, is that, you're right, no amount of wealth will ever make somebody happy, but man, do they think that it will. Right. <laughs> you know, so they just, you know, go on destructively consuming and endlessly acquiring um, because they're told that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, that someday they'll have enough stuff to be happy, and it never happens. You know, um, and then uh, when you measure their happiness against the people who actually go out of their way to be minimalist, people like Tammy, people like me, you know, and to those of you who haven't heard that show, you guys can check out uh, the Tammy Strobel interview. And um, the first in the list of the archives is a show called Why Money and the Stuff We Buy With It Does Not Make Us Happy, which is what inspired me to get Tammy on the show um, that, that talks about this topic. But go ahead, Chibi. <clears throat> Well, I was just thinking in the sense that even as Fresco pointed out, we will always lack and that will drive us as a species. We seem to be restless uh, in our uh, desires no matter what we achieve. We want to 
surpass that. And I mean, it's just being misdirected towards material goods, in my opinion. Right. And now we're on a quest to to better ourselves and our standard of living uh, scientifically rather than <clears throat> thinking that if I buy an $8,000 handbag, I'll be a better person and people will look at me like I'm a better person because I've got it. Right. That's where desires basically being false and corrupted come from. Squandering our potential. Exactly. Anything further, Chibi? No, I'm good. Aaron? Um, I would say just that our desires could be infinite technically, like, um, as you said, if infinity is right in front of us, but once you understand that it's not and what is actually on the planet, that's kind of the... uh, whole value shift that we talk about and why when they argue that we won't be able to calculate um, distribution for people's infinite wants, it's a fallacy because we're talking about a system in which people do not infinitely want. They understand sustainability and what it means to be sustainable and they want to be sustainable. Um, So, yeah, I... um, Anyone have anything to say on that? <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask. Um, Frank? Yes. As a matter of fact, I do. Um, I ran into an article, which I linked to you earlier, um, about an hour or so before this uh, show started. And it was just sent to me. So I haven't had a chance to actually read through this article. It's rather long-winded. There are three parts to it. Uh, but people can find it on shareable dot net forward slash blogs forward slash and then the name of the uh, blog is changing models of ownership and what this article is suggesting is that a lot of people throughout society throughout the world are actually moving towards that more minimalist approach they are um, changing their mode of ownership and their ideas and concepts of ownership and they're beginning to realize and recognize the uh, the inherent problems, the inherent burden that comes with ownership of so much stuff. At what point does it become a burden? So, as I said, I have not actually had a chance to read through this article yet, but it looks really interesting and really promising, and it goes completely counter to the whole notion of infinite wants. All right. Al? Yeah. Um, commenting on that, we must not um, we must not forget that those modern economic methodologies were invented a hundred or so years ago, and to pretend that they must remain practically unchanged by putting some band-aids here and there, I think is just as ignorant and barbaric as to say that we can keep on competing with each other forever, competing with each other until there's just two guys left fighting for the last piece of meat on earth. People often say, who cares? Live for yourself, your family, and your loved ones. Let fate decide the curse of humanity. When in reality, because of people who cared, that is, that is because of that that we are enjoying any benefits at all nowadays. If no one actually cared, we'd still be living in slavery conditions. Well, we still are, but our standard of living raised substantially over the last century. 
thanks to those few people who actually risked their own lives to force the changes we desperately needed. So to say incredibly ignorant, apathetic, arrogant stuff like, you are not going to make any difference at all. Let it be, man. Just let it be. Take it easy. It's just plain ridiculous. Baseless out of laziness. That most people will often will open their mouths not to offer constructive feedback and will often prefer to take the easy way out on the problems by completely ignoring them. So basically, the Austrian economics and those Von Mises fans are saying, well, yeah, okay, the damn boat is sinking. We accept it. But it still works. We still have food. The whole system is breaking apart, but it's still standing, right? So I'd rather stay in this. I'd rather stay like this than, ma- than taking chances with any other different paradigm that reminds me of some ancient failed system. So basically, they are saying, hey, we, we have seen it all. There's nothing new. There will never be anything new. So we have to stay like this, period. Yes. We've heard countless theories from uh, uh, different rather crazy entrepreneurs, but nothing works best than plutocracy than what we actually have right now. You know, it's so idiotic, so so uh, so arrogant. That that that's what really pisses me off from these people to to be so arrogant and to and to pretend that we have to stay. We have to uh, stay attached to an ancient, outdated idea. Yeah, that's definitely true, and it, it's it's one of the reasons why I've told people because they've asked me, you know. Um, and speaking of which, folks, uh, I did upload my recent interview with the people at Free Talk Live, and the conversation did go actually pretty well. But um, you can you can check that out; it's in the archives already. Uh, when I do upload a show, it doesn't send out an email to everybody, so it, that's why, you know, if you've got this show, then obviously you should go back and check out that one. I also uploaded my uh, Resistance Radio segment uh, as an episode of V Radio, so you guys can go check those out. Um, but anyway, it is difficult to deal with some of these people because they do kind of have an arrogant attitude about things. Um, and they have a tendency to just, well, they, they'll sit there and quote this stuff to you. Uh, I keep going back to the guy who who said that um, it's economically proven that wages will increase with um, productivity as if it was a law of physics, as if it absolutely must happen that way, even though outsourcing proves that uh, producers are not looking to raise wages. They're looking to lower wages or eliminate wages entirely. And the guy's answer to that was, well, you need to study more. I'm like, no, why don't you answer my question? No amount of me reading Mises is going to make me change my mind about what I just said. The world is not the same place. As technology increased, outsourcing became viable, and now the whole attitude about wages has changed. It's now a matter of finding who will do it for the least amount. Like you revealed during our Mexico show, Al, you talked about the fact that now even Mexico is not desperate enough. They're outsourcing out of Mexico and into new countries. We were kicked out from the desperate chairs. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you guys are too industrious now. We need to move on to somebody more desperate and wants even less. We so, are too Amer- we are too Americanized now. So, 
we <laughs> we are not important now. <laughs> right. But um, uh, all right. I'm going to move on now, unless anybody else had anything to add. Well, I did have. Well, now, never no, mind. No, go ahead, Frank. I'll, I'll go ahead. Go ahead, Frank, uh, or you'll forget. Well, yeah, I, I already forgot. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, well, if you uh, forgot, then we can come back to it. Yeah. Just write this stuff down is what I tell Chibi, because he'll forget stuff if you don't <laughs> bug him. And it's always good. You know, and then he'll tell me sometimes oh, yeah. after the show is over. Oh, you remembered. Go I ahead. I remembered what it was. Yes. It's really amazing when you're dealing with these money market economists because one of their arguments, it's like this giant monopoly game, right? And so one of their favorite arguments to use is you have one apple and two people. How do you divide it equitably without price mechanism? And my question to them is – actually, my statement to them is – if you have one apple and two people, and that's all you have left in the world, you've got a whole lot bigger problems than how to divide that fucking apple. <laughs> and you better hope one of those two people is of the opposite sex. <laughs> all right, then. You know, Neil? Neil? Yes. When I, I remember that interview with that guy, Volshinu, what, what was his name? Uh, Stefan Molyneux. Yeah, that guy, that annoying guy that, that kept saying, "Oh no, no, no! I don't. I, I, um, please spell me the drama. I, um, I, I don't want to talk about that. I just, I just want to talk about the, uh, the how, 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 how you gonna, how you gonna allocate these resources, huh? How? how? Tell me. I'm all ears. I'm all ears. I'm not, not shut. You know, when, when, when we, uh, again, uh, when we receive this. Uh, well, they throw at us the whole package as how to allocate, how to, to how to distribute the resources. They seem to think that it's obviously hard to think to think it all at once. But again, what 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 is there to allocate? What is there to distribute when when we are planning something that that uh, in most cases will be produced locally, such as the food in the buildings, without the soil, such as the um, the uh, manufacturers, uh, uh, you know, places to go gather uh, items to to um, to check in and check out. I mean, everything will be produced locally, so the primary necessities will be produced locally. So, what is so hard to what is so hard to understand? What is there to allocate? What is there to distribute? Only the hard resources, such as uh, hard to obtain resources, will be will have to be handled differently with machines, with robots, with with transportation, with everything, but what is so hard to understand in in a in a local based society? Why why do we need to grow apples um, in in you know in your house when when you can have a, a place nearby your home with, when where they have this this product? Or what? Why do you need? Why do we need to produce um, any other fruit in any other foreign place, and then trans like, like we do nowadays, and then transport that to uh, to uh, thirty thousand miles away from the place it it was grown, right? Right. Well, no, and I, and that's definitely one of the things that will that will minimize the amount of resource expenditure. But all right. Well, let me go ahead and get back to the blog here. Um, all right. So what is different between what we suggest and what other quote-unquote centrally planned economies did? Well, first of all, all those systems advocated force or coercion to achieve their goals. Every one of those systems were run by people who did not understand the environmental impact on human behavior. 
They relied on laws, prisons, etc., to deal with the inevitable problems that arise from circumstances of scarcity. Secondly, and more importantly, the points that Mises and Hayek used to point to the failings in those systems do not apply to ours. There are no whims being used to decide the allocation of resources. All of those systems were microcosmic attempts at human opinion-based central planning, which I'm going to thank Aaron Moritz on the call for <laughs> a particular quote because that was very eloquent. Okay, I'm coming back to this. Uh, as pointed out previously, it was at the whims of bureaucrats, and no such whims will exist in our system that is based on the scientific method. Every citizen of the society would be acutely aware of the state of resources on our planet and the implications of their consumption. Thirdly, the technology available to us is vastly superior to what was available at the time that any of these monetary thinkers were contemplating their limitations. Even without the modern technology we have today, this was achievable. In the early 1970, the government of Chile asked a British operations research scientist named Stafford Beer to develop a system for tracking information all over the country for the purposes of a computer-controlled economy. The system was highly advanced for its time and did work. It was called Project CyberSyn. For those of you who are going to want to research that, Cyber, S-Y-N. Um, when I was doing research on it, I was not surprised to see that several conservative bloggers have made a really bogus report as to its success. Without fail, uh, but, but without pay, fail, people who were actually involved in the project would come forward and refuted the nonsense that was being portrayed. Chile had decided to nationalize its copper production. In typical economic hitman fashion, the United States did not like that very much and eventually went out of its way to cause problems for the socialist Chilean government. The following is from one of the accounts of someone involved in the project. Quote, across Chile, with secret support from the CIA, conservatives and conservative small businessmen went on strike. Food and fuel supplies threatened to run out. Then the government realized that Cybersyn offered a way of outflanking the strikers. The telexes could be used to obtain intelligence about where scarcities were worst and where people were still working who could alleviate them. The interconnected telex machines, exchanging 2,000 messages a day, were a potent instrument, enabling the government to identify and organize alternative transportation resources that kept the economy moving. Because of Project Cybersyn, the Chilean government was able to keep their economy running using a, fr using a fraction of the resources previously demanded, and the strike that was an attempt to get rid of the president who had the audacity to think that Chilean copper should be used for the people of Chile failed. I'm hoping to get someone who is involved in this project on V-Radio at some point, but suffice it to say, with some ancient telex machines, they were able to keep their economy moving. And that technology is dwarfed by the capabilities of our information technology now. More complex versions of Project Cybersyn's style of cybernetic management are already being used by blue-chip corporations all over the world to maintain their own infrastructures. In conclusion, it is important to remember that uh, – actually, I'm going to go ahead and um, I'm going to pause here real quick to talk about the topic of – what makes our system different than the previous centrally planned economies that they you know, basically list off with their huge death tolls. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and start with you, Chibi. What exactly 
Our, uh, We're commenting on the differences between what we propose in a resource-based economy and the failures of communism or other essentially based, you know, planned economies. Mm. I'll leave that to you guys. <laughs> All right. What about you, Aaron? Um, I would say it's uh, just I don't even like the term centrally planned because it implies that there is one computer or one central planning body if it was communism or something, but um, that it's just one thing making all the decisions when it's really a com global network as such. It's not really uh, it's not really one central body making decisions, one central computer or anything. It is a, it's a global network. It's decentralized across the planet, but connected. Yeah, that's actually an important point because people ask about what would happen if, like, you know, somebody tried to take control of the computer. And I'm like, it's a network of information. Even Project CyberSend was just uh, – it was an advanced information exchange. And if for some reason, say, somebody took over Russia um, when they were trying to take over the world in a resource-based economy, then we just unplug from the Russian part of the system. It's It's not that hard. You know, to to find ways to to solve things like that. So yeah, there's not just one computer that somebody can hack into, and then all of a sudden they have control over everything. It's, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they'd right. have to hack into every computer on the planet. Right. Yeah, they seem to think that that one guy is going to unplug it, unplug the the main computer, and then we're all screwed. There's nothing to do. Nothing. Nobody knows what to do anymore. Right. <laughs> right. No, that's uh it's, it's so, we would so just be that. why why the hell why the hell would we yeah, put stupid. only one central computer for the whole thing? That would be the most stupid thing ever. I mean it's like like you guys have said, it's it's gonna be a network. It's gonna be I mean everybody is gonna be connected to it. Not not it's not gonna be a central system for for everyone to obey everything as you know, one thing after another. It's it's is going to be a, a helping system rather than a rather than a, a political or a mandatory system. If you don't do this, then you are unplugged. So it's, just it's like Randy, Randy said in her one uh, her reply to uh, what was it? Yeah, the storm clouds. You know, they do that parody where it's just so you know, we could turn <laughs> off all food production. But we won't because you already know how to produce your own food. And we can turn off the water, but we won't because you already know how to get fresh water. So there's really nothing that we can do to you. But we have to get <laughs> what we can do to you is play really annoying music over the loudspeaker. The loudspeaker. <laughs> right. We have to. I think we need to fight this idea, Neil, that people seem to get so persisting on. That there's only going to be one mandatory central planning computer. We have to get rid. We have to talk more about this. That it's not going to be a single thing. It's going to be everyone connected, everyone participating, everyone um, uploading their ideas, everyone do downloading ideas, everyone contributing as a, as a as a system, as a as a whole, as a unity. It's not going to be. Uh, um, uh you know a crazy hollywood movie when they when they always uh put in front of us this crazy idea that 
it, that in the future we are actually going uh, walking towards a system like the Venus Project, but it's going to turn evil one way or another. In every movie, they, they present this idea that we are, we are too dumb. It's not going to work. It's going to get evil. So we have to get rid of this. We have to talk more about this. Right, because it's clear that it's going to turn evil, and um, it's much better that we just have a bunch of individual consumers driven by irrational stuff that's based on the profit motive, you know, just to spend resources willy-nilly. That's definitely a much better solution, um, right. you know, until we all die. Okay, now, Chibi, you had some information about Chile you were going to add to the conversation. Uh, well, I guess it's just a, an afternote. It sounded like a happy ending, Um to some degree when you just hear about this this project they were working on but actually Allende was a uh, a few years later overthrown and uh murdered uh, along with most of his cabinet and uh a, a man named Pinochet took over for the next uh, I don't know 20 some odd years It's and actually good that you brought that up because they <clears throat> they were so scared of Project Cybersyn that they destroyed it when they did that during well, the they, military coup they destroyed a lot of things. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, they and, they they went in there and they explained to the military what it did, and so they 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 destroyed it. <laughs> right, I I hadn't heard of that particular thing, I, but I did hear uh, of of the overall incident and looked at the history of it, and uh, just another sad story, I suppose. Uh, it, um, what was it? The uh, rise of disaster capitalism, shock doctrine that covered it in depth pretty well, and it's really interesting. Right. Um, that was actually, um, you know, the overthrow of, of Allende, who was democratically elected in Chile uh, and actually was uh, helped and taken part in by the CIA and, you know, U.S. interests and foreign corporations had their hands in it and tried to free up the market. Well, there it goes. You know, the whole free market ideology had a big hand to play there in Chile. And it was one of the first places where they, they actually got to implement some of the ideas of people like Friedman, who, as you know, um, goes nuts over the whole free market ideology. Right. And then didn't you say that it led to a disaster afterwards, though? Yeah, their economy completely crashed, I think, in the 80s. And then they ended up reverting back to uh, some Keynesian... Uh, ideas and uh, eventually pulled out of it the depression and and they're doing okay today well it's okay as anybody i guess you could say but but it's funny because a lot of free market uh well i should say friedman supporters today will will look at chile point to chile as as a a great example of how the free market took a a backward third world nation and and you know made it so successful <laughs> but when you really look at the story it's it's tragic but Anyhow. Right. So they panic, send in the CIA, you know, we can't have these people with this, you know, computer economy owning their own copper. That's just not okay. We're actually going to get into that actually further into the blog when we get into the, the, the golden million or billion actually. But um, thanks for your uh, contribution there. I'm going to go ahead and read more of the blog. Um, in conclusion, it is important to remember that the Austrian school of economics and the opinions of Ludwig von Mises are not infallible. They represent limitations that are set by men who have limitations in their own understanding of the capabilities of technology. 
Those limitations are inherent in mankind as technology always manages to exceed our expectations. The Wright brothers were making flying machines while the intellectuals of the day were being paid to write books about why man would never fly. It is important to understand when you're dealing with people who are advocates of this school to remind yourself that the Austrian School of Economics is a fringe philosophy. It is not embraced by the majority of economists and is in fact rejected as a mainstream school of economics because of the attitude in the philosophy of throwing one's hands up in the air and letting everything just play out what way it may. You know, quote, it won't work because Mises said so is not an argument any more than continuing to quote the physics experts who said that man would never fly would be a viable argument today. Something to consider when people are quoting Mises is if they are quoting something empirically, basically something to consider is this quote coming up when people are quoting Mises as if they are quoting something empirical and infallible. Mises wrote of his economic methodology that, quote, its statements and propositions are not derived from experience. They are not subject to verification or falsification on the ground of experience and facts. So in other words, he made it up. This is why Austrian theory is rejected by the mainstream. I do want to quickly ask the panel what they think of that quote. That is, its statements and propositions are not derived from experience. They are not subject to verification or falsification on the ground of experience and facts. Now, does that sound like superstition or voodoo to you? I know it sounded like that to me. Um, Chibi? Yeah, it sounds like either religion or absolute truth. I'm not sure. <laughs> that sounds more like blah, 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 blah. Also, as I was discussing earlier, we can't come to a, a real uh, fundamental truth within experience. So maybe that's what it is. He's, he's outside experience, and therefore he, he has the truth. Okay, what do you did think? any? Sarcasm, by the way. What were you? I'm, hold on a sec, Frank. I was going to let Aaron go, and then you go, um, just okay. to be sure everybody gets in. Um, what do you think of that quote, Aaron? I was just going to say, there's actually a sentence from that uh, quote that's omitted, and it's uh, in the middle. It says, its statements and propositions are not derived from experience. They are, like those of logic and mathematics, a priori. They are not subject to verification or falsification on the grounds of experience or facts. So he's basically saying that his ideas on how humans are going to behave in an economy are like logic, like math. They are a priori, which means existing prior to um, the example they give on Wikipedia for a priori knowledge is that all bachelors are unmarried. Basically, just something that's like um, believe it's obvious, I guess. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. What were you going to say, J.D.? I was just saying it's pronounced a, a priori. Actually, I think I might have messed it up the first time, too. So then what was the point behind that, Aaron? Just that he considers his economic theories to be as fundamental, like you said, laws of physics or fundamental laws of the universe, a priori laws or a priori uh, whatever so it's a law of the universe that all of his statements work that the way they do even though they're not subject to verification or falsification or ground of experience and facts which is like the definition of superstition you know and yeah no actually i think what it what he means by that um at least in the context of mises i'm sure he's not saying it's a he he's saying it's just basically Internally, logically consistent in every way, shape, and form, and and 
although he hasn't experienced it, he you can think through the process and know that it's true in the same way that you can think through 2 plus 2 equals 4 and it be true. You don't have to actually see 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's just logically consistent. But So it's uh, like feeling the love of God inside you. Uh, no, it's not quite like that. Well, I no, just want to make fun of it. That, sure, I'm but, sorry, but that's I mean, but like, yeah, you can use logic to prove uh, almost any. Well, prove in quotation marks almost anything, which I guess is kind of the point. It can be skewed logic. All right, um, Frank. Okay, well, uh, when uh, when he brought up that part about the missing t- uh, text from the quote that kind of put the quote into context, which actually points to and and puts into context the the part of my blog that was different from yours, which I promised to go into later. I I would like to reserve some time at the end of the show so that I can bring that up. Meanwhile, what I was going to say is, did anybody notice in the quote how it kind of denies its scientific um relevance by suggesting that it cannot be tested and or refuted you know isn't science and the scientific method all about being able to test these things these theories and uh, and, and so doesn't it kind of shed a new light on all of those economists who are saying well yeah what i practice is a science Econ- economics is a science well, you know, that's the thing, actually, is the reason why the uh, Austrian school is widely rejected is because of its absolute refusal to uh, adhere to any kind of scientific method. Um, that's the reason that it's it's not really looked on as a uh, as a school that, you know, re- really makes sense. It's it, And when you look at it, especially when you start arguing with these people, it really does start to feel like you're arguing with somebody who's participating in a religion. Um but in any case, I'm going to get back to the blog. Um, during my presentation during the Agoro conference, I used the analogy of a spaceship. When a spaceship is going on a prolonged trip, there is no free market economy set up on board to determine how the resources on board will be used. They are calculated by scientists on the ground before the vessel ever gets underway. Though mankind lives uh, in a really big spaceship we call Earth, the more our population grows and the more our technological capability to impact our environmental conditions, the smaller the Earth effectively gets. In a situation of limited resources, allowing the whims of anyone to determine resource allocation would not only be dangerous, they would be suicidal. And the danger of anyone owning these resources exclusive to themselves with a profit motive as a factor would be obvious. Nobody should have such power. You wouldn't let anyone own all the oxygen on a spaceship you were on. The oxygen should be considered the common heritage of everyone on board. In the end, I have noticed a trend while debating these topics. People don't want to consider that they might not be free to buy whatever their hearts desire. The market system and its price mechanism allow people to continue to look at resources as something that will always be at the store waiting for them. They see people like us pointing out these limitations, and they project that we would want to enforce some limitations on them. They fail to see that no matter how free they believe they are, if there were only six ounces of a given resources left on the earth, they don't have the right to take seven ounces. 
not because we are going to force anything on them, but because there are only six ounces left. And if great care is not taken in the use of those limited resources, nobody will have access to them. Then there is the very real issue of the golden billion effect, a theory that points to the fact that the Western world is consuming resources at a rate that far exceeds the rest of the world. It is through imperialism that we have maintained this circumstance of a few privileged countries gaining all of the benefits of civilization while we loot resources out of any country that might wish to use its own resources to better itself and the standard of living of the people in it. In an article called A Clash of Civilizations, A Possibility by David Bryan, he describes this issue. Under the once popular golden billion theory, people living in the economically advanced European nations, Japan and the United States, enjoy in full measure the fruits of civilization at the expense of their less lucky brethren sweating elsewhere in the world. These days, this golden billion is being increasingly diluted by a steadily widening influx of migrants coming in from the third world, which means that we are now talking about a considerably larger number of privileged ones whose comfortable existence the rest of the world may no longer be able to ensure, which may also mean that we are in for a new redrawing of the global map, say, by China, which is working so hard to get rich and is already setting its sights on global leadership. The people you see who are addicted to the lifestyle that they have brainwashed themselves into believing is fair are trying desperately to ignore the fact that we cannot hold on to 40% of the world's resources in the hands of a small percentage of the population forever. And we can only keep that hold through imperialism masked as making the world safe for democracy. There are not enough resources for everyone on the planet to live the wasteful lifestyle of the average American. World wars have always been the means by which these struggles for dominance have been waged, from the Roman Empire to World War II. And with technology getting more and more dangerous, we are now looking at destruction on a scale never seen before. Mankind has to rise above this idea that fighting for the position of dominance in the world economy is acceptable. We need to rise above the idea that one nation should be better off than the majority of nations. The reality is that lifestyles that we enjoy in the first world are not due to the magic of the market system. The entire system is upheld through imperialism. The rest of the world is not going to put up with that forever. The market system spreading to such a global scale would either A, set the stage for an apocalyptic World War III, or B, drag the standard of living of everyone on the planet down. The market system hinges on the idea of equal opportunity, and there quite simply is no equal opportunity for the entire world to live the wasteful, selfish lifestyle that we do in the West. The resources did not exist for this to happen. But a society designed using the scientific method to come to rational values, strategic access of goods, and an egalitarian approach can provide a great lifestyle for everyone. The price mechanism is no more based on rationality than a bureaucracy arbitrarily deciding how resources should be expended, and neither the whims of bureaucrats in a centrally planned economy nor the whims of consumers in a price mechanism profit-motivated economy are sufficient for adequately deciding how resources should be allocated on a planet with finite resources. We don't, as a species, have the freedom to use resources irrespective of what impact it will have on the earth we all live on. And that is why we must use the scientific method for social concern if we are going to survive.
Well, that concludes the blog, so I'm going to go ahead and open the conversation a little bit here. Um, we're going to obviously we need to dis we discuss the the golden billion effect, which is essentially the idea that you know we have this small minority on the planet that are living in first world conditions, and that the imperialism actually the the Chile example is an excellent example because that's an example of in how in order to live the way we do in the United States. We have to uh, be a harsh regime controlling the resources of other countries. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't work. Uh, we've already run out of a lot of resources here in the United States, which is why we are so desperate to take the uh, resource rights in other countries. So um, first, I'm going to open the mic to Chidi. Um, I think I'll just follow the conversation and, and comment later if I think of something. All right. Aaron? Um, yeah, I'll pass for the moment, too. All right. Frank? Okay. I'd like to take it back to the point where um, where you were discussing the American lifestyle, the wasteful American lifestyle. And it's true throughout much of the Western world, the uh, civilized, more advanced worlds, that there is an awful lot of waste, an awful lot of um, what I prefer to call to uh, recall uh, – I prefer to refer to as linear consumption, even though uh, a lot of other people, including Peter, refer to it as cyclical consumption. I, I prefer to call it a linear consumption because what you end up with is a linear effect where a product is ripped from the uh, fabric of the universe, whether it's the planet or space or wherever the hell this particular resource comes from. It is processed, manufactured, and then consumed, and that's it. That's the end of the cycle. There is no real cycle because if we were going to consume in a cycle, then that product would come back around to where it is being reproduced into something else right. or the, a, the same or similar product it would somehow feed back into the system and you would get this uh this loop this ever perpetuating loop of cycles that support the system that allow the system to to perpetuate yeah there's a really great documentary about uh cradle to cradle design called uh waste equals food or food equals waste i can't remember something like that but it talks about exactly that um using uh, any waste product as some type of food for either a new product or for the ecosystem so that nothing becomes waste. That's actually, yeah, that's critical to Venus Project design, but it's uh, it's it's essentially anti-critical to capitalist design of products because, you know, as was pointed out in the, uh, uh, the documentary that I, you know, I recommended on the show, um, pyramids of waste. There was actually, you know, articles where they pointed out that uh, any object that lasts forever um, is a, is a tragedy to the market because then nobody has to buy it again. Um, you know, if you only ever had to buy a single light bulb, well, for every place in your house, and never had to buy them again, what does that do to the economy as far as people who make light bulbs? Uh, well, obviously, it means that you can only sell so many, and then you can't sell them anymore. And that's the inherent um, point behind the idea that they want to design things to break because otherwise they can't sell more of them. And uh, the economy itself is essentially 
directly linked to this consumption. Um, and as you pointed out, you know, the, the cradle to cradle idea is that we build things um, as a requirement. Essentially, anything that is to be made should be made with the ability for it to be recycled completely, you know, down to nothing, or just to be designed in such a way, um, I'm going to say modular design, where you can uh, pull out the given pieces that you need, like the cell phones I talked about earlier. You know, what if we could just replace our SIM card? Um, Annie Leonard talks about how, like, the motherboard you know, you technically on your computer, all you would really have to change is one chip on the whole thing to upgrade it to the next level, but they're designed to be sure that that isn't possible. Um, you know, these are all examples of things that are done in the same, you know, for the sake of saving profit. And they always say, well, you know, in a free market, that wouldn't happen. But, okay, so in a free market, if what they're saying is true, um, everybody would then design products that were absolutely perfect, that lasted forever, and then everybody would go out of business. It, it isn't, as was pointed out in that documentary, it, it isn't it isn't possible to get around plant obsolescence and have a market. No, they would think of new and better things and start new markets and uh, more and more and more forever. Right, forever. Right. <laughs> I think part of the problem that we're facing here is that when people think of economics, they think of it in terms of a market. They don't. So, so when you produce a product that will never go bad and can always be recycled, then you're essentially committing what they view as economic suicide. But it really isn't. All it really is is market suicide. Economics is all about economies, right? Economies of scale, econ economizing, saving. When we, when we look up the term economy, what we find is economy means saving, the most efficient use of your resources or management of those resources. Now, um, Al, did you have anything you wanted to add at this point? Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's let's accept for a second what these people from the free markets are saying. Build up your own company and become successful. But okay, until when? Until we get kicked out by a bigger firm? Until the imperial army comes to destroy everything I worked for my entire life? Until my kids are kidnapped? and I have to keep my entire possessions trying to get them back? Or until a group of angry and hungry people come in and vandalize my store? There's, you know, there's dozens of rich people here in my country that have suffered the kidnapping of one of, the, of their kids. Did, those, did all those things really sound foreign and impossible? So... Until until when are we supposed to do this? Until when we are supposed to be competing with each other? This all of these things I mentioned happen all the time. Bigger companies buying smaller companies or, or kicking them out. Imperial armies are already invading the the um the the uh, middle what do they call it? You know, Afghanistan, Iraq and all those countries. So 
Does this sound? Does all of these things sound really impossible to happen in if I make my own business? Yeah. Does, does all these things really sound impossible to happen to me? Well, no, and it's. It, I, I see where you're coming from with that, and it, I mean, never mind the fact that one in four new businesses fails, and that one in four that within the first year, and then one in four of those in turn fail. Um, and that the system is not really set up for entry. Now, they blame all of that on the state, um, but it, just sheer competition, it's, it's, lunacy, it's lunacy to think that we can compete, you know, because basically the reason that Walmart, for example, is so difficult to unseat is because Walmart depends on foreign uh, labor that is essentially you know, people that are willing to live a slave-like lifestyle. Um, and uh, we can't possibly compete with that. It doesn't matter how many government regulations there are. It's the deregulations of trade that allow them to, to basically to take advantage of that, to go to countries where there are no regulations on labor, where there are no regulations on how those people are, you know, can, you know but how much those people can ask for, you know, as far as to uh, how they could be treated, the working conditions and, and things of that nature. They basically yeah. are going to deregulated economies uh, uh, to find their a, labor. And a note to that, Neil, it's not that there are no regulations here in Mexico. The problem is that they come here and make the regulations they want. So they, they get together with the, uh, with the local representatives and they make things exactly as they need them. It's not that this is a, a, an ignorant country or the third entire world is is an ignorant or or an ancient uh, uh, ignorant uh, masses. It's it's about what they do here. It's it's how these corporations come here and obligate and they force the local uh, managers to bend the rules if they have to in order to to regulate the way they want. It's not that there there aren't any regulations here. Just on on a note to that. Right now, Chibi, you had something to add. Uh, yeah, I think you kind of covered it with the the difficulty of entry for uh, being an entrepreneur and such. I was just going to comment on that. Uh, like as we've discussed before, it's it's not like I can go in my backyard and dig up some oil and start competing with Enron. Uh, there's really <laughs> no realistic scenario for uh, some small time entrepreneur coming along with no uh, background. At least, I mean, I know Bush can do it when Daddy says so, but uh, it. For you or I, uh, it's just not going to happen. There's no means to do such a thing. Uh, somebody can maybe grow tomatoes in their backyard, go to the local market and sell a few cheaper than Walmart uh, if, if they so choose. But when it comes to the the complex uh, production processes where you need a, a, a humongous factory and X amount of workers and Uh, it's just uh, nobody can really compete with that. No, you know, small business owner can just step up out of nowhere, move into the system, and start competing. So that there isn't really any check and balance anymore versus corporations. It's just gotten too big, as we see with the too big to fail nonsense. And there's some truth to it, I suppose. But um, <clears throat> the other thing, I guess, I was going to bring up just as a Aside, sort of funny, since you mentioned Walmart, the thing that we discussed earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please go ahead and share this. 
but yeah, that I, I'd run across an article recently uh, where Walmart is is lobbying against and complaining and really whining actually about uh, Amazon and other online distributors who who they feel are are too hard to compete with, and uh, you know because they don't, you don't have to pay sales tax when you buy online and and various other reasons. And Walmart thinks this is just so unfair. You know, it's. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, I, I thought the irony of it was just too sweet. You know, when you hear the mom and pop stories, and that was a big issue ten, fifteen years ago. Oh well, we can't compete. This isn't fair. And and Walmart says, ah, oh, this is the free market. Tough luck. And <laughs> and now uh, now that the you know it's on the other foot, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> They're, now they're, they're crying about uh, Amazon and other online distributors. I, I just thought that was hilarious. Well, you know, the funny thing about that, Chibi, is as we also pointed out when we were talking about that earlier, is that Amazon um, and eBay and things of that nature are actually another excellent example of how technology has changed the situation. The reason that Amazon can compete is because um, the, the information technology is so much better um, that now people can choose between products. They can look at huge inventories. They can determine, you know, what they want based on the information technologies that we have now. The reason that Amazon and eBay and things of that nature are making such a splash is because of the advancements in technology that are making even Walmart obsolete. You know, and that's why I think that there's no reason why we can't just have a system where we use, like, you know, in a resource-based economy. You know, most of the things that you want, you're going to be ordering in the equivalent of online anyway, you know, um, right. and, and that and information will all get calculated and get shipped out to you. Yeah, you know? well, there's certainly still a place for them. Uh, like if you want to buy toilet paper, it's it's simpler, I suppose, just to stop by Walmart on the way home. But uh, with any big purchase, yeah, people are definitely going online these days. And it it is cheaper. Yeah, it is. Um, I have a caller who wanted to be added, um, so I'm going to go ahead and bring him on now. Um, Devin, you're on the air. Hey there, what's up? Yeah, um, glad to be on. Anyways, um, one of the interesting things about, uh, if, if you don't mind me, like, you know, uh, turning back the conversation towards the Golden Billion. No, go it's, ahead. It's, okay, all right. It's kind of an interesting prospect, because if you read uh, people like John McMurtry, cancer stage of capitalism, because the golden billion effect is, is primarily a very interesting prospect uh, due to the fact that it's it's kind of anti acting as a cancer, because basically the market system, the free market that we have, is somewhat of an invasive cancer, but in, but it masks itself as as if um, as if somehow it is created. Uh, as an as an actual bloodstream in the actual organism that it goes towards, and for some reason it 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 just invades, 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 and and I really think that when it comes down to it, it, it just kept growing and growing. It's just you know the golden million effect. It's just one of the primary examples why the free market is is unsustainable. It doesn't work. It's just a cancer, and it's basically feeding off of the lifeblood of a lot of the other nations and life systems and and everything else to sort of feed the to sort of feed their money interests and I think that's really a problem then when it comes down to it I mean cancer systems 
You don't want right. those. That's actually something during the Agora conference when I brought up the spaceship analogy. They didn't really have an argument um, for what I was saying, which was that we cannot continue an infinite production cycle on a planet with finite resources. It can't. It, it will never work. It is unsustainable. Um, and, and not because of any theories or anything like that. It's obvious. You can't go on producing cars. You're going to run out of metal. You know, I mean, and if you don't produce them thinking about how you can recycle them, if you don't produce them thinking about making them last as possible, as long as possible, it's, it, it, it will fail. And it's it kind of comes back to the same point, which is that um, the, the point behind the golden billion, and this is actually what's brought up, and, and it's different every time I hear it, but like Annie Leonard during the story of stuff said that if everybody was producing and using resources the way that we are in the in the West right now, we would need four planets. You know, uh, I believe Peter in Zeitgeist Moving Forward said three. I've heard five. Um, you know, the, the number of planets is different. But even if they're wrong about the amount of planets we would need, it doesn't change the fact that it stands to reason that if everybody on the planet was consuming in the same way that we do in the United States, the planet does not have enough resources for that to happen. And that's the reason why throughout the ages, we in different times have always had an imperialist system that allowed some people to do well, like all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others, whether it's through market systems, monarchies, communism, it doesn't change anything. It always ends up being a scheme to convince the majority of people that a minority should do really well and everybody else should just serve them. And you find that it's funny that it just keeps ending up like that, whether it's in the capitalist system where they brainwash you into thinking, well, you know, you have an equal chance to be rich and famous, so it's completely fair that I'm rich and famous so that you're not. You know, if you just worked a little bit harder, you know, then you'd be fine. You know, that's the that's the BS they feed you with capitalism. In communism, it's the nomenclature who are telling you that, well, you know, we're doing a little better right now because we're the administrators. But don't worry, in five years or so, well, everything will be equal and we'll have the dictatorship of the proletariat. Everybody will be in charge. But don't, you know, but for now, you know, this this is just the way it is. So you're just going to have to accept it until we get to that day. You know, you end up having uh, cultures that are brainwashed enough to believe that like North Korea being the most uh, absurd example of communism, obviously. You know, those people believe they're a communist country too, even though Kim Jong-il and his, you know, his people live high on the hog and the majority of his people are in total poverty or don't even have electricity. You know, we, we run into this, and it's, it's, it, the thing is, is the rest of the world is wising up. And that's why I said it, it will set us up for World War III. We're already moving in that direction because countries like China – who essentially prop up our economy. I mean, they literally hold it up on crutches, essentially. We get, we borrow so much money from China to keep our economy moving. Um, eventually, you know, China is not exactly the most friendly country to us on the earth, and they're developing their uh, military infrastructure for a reason. Uh, Russia, some of the other countries, they're sick of us. You know, and uh, that basically puts us in a situation where eventually the rest of the world's going to say, you know, I'm not so big on this. Uh, the Western world gets everything. I, I think that I'm kind of done with that. Um, and that's essentially what you know Saddam is saying when he wanted to start trading his oil in the euro rather than in the dollar was trying to do. 
you know, watch that closely, folks, because that's the making of World War III. Now, Frank wanted to, be, to give a presentation, Devin, so I want to go ahead and let him get into what was different about his blog, and we'll hopefully have enough time later on. And thank you for coming on. I'm not going to kick you off the call or anything. Go ahead, Frank. Frank? Oh, all right. <laughs> now, for, sorry, my mic was still uh, Hello? muted. Um, yeah. yeah, Aaron, what's up? Oh, no, that was Devin. You talked. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Frank. <laughs> um, Hello? First, uh, before I go into that, I... We can hear you, Al. We can hear you. Sorry, go ahead, Frank. Hello? Anybody there? <laughs> yes, Al, we can hear you. Oh. Okay. Go ahead, Frank. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Before I go into the uh, little bit of a outline of what was different in my blog from yours, or the main main point that I was making in my blog... Um, I wanted to touch on the, this uh, thing that you were talking about earlier, or just a little while ago, which was about how uh, there there's not enough to go around at the same rate that we're using here in America. And so whenever you put some facts out there like that, then a lot of people start getting scared and saying, oh, wait, 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 wait. Well, then maybe we're better off in this system, right? Because, you know, screw those people over there. Let them starve to death just so long as I can still have my Walkman. Right. And, and what we true. really need to face is that if you apply a truly rational, and I, and I mean that entirely differently from what I'm about to present with, what I understand Mises' argument to be. Um, when you apply a truly rational management of your resources and you you employ that cycle that we were talking about, that cradle-to-cradle cycle that we we're talking about, then you end up with an abundance and everyone can live a similar lifestyle just without all the damn waste. Right. Okay. Now, just to uh, alleviate that little fear that a lot of people seem to have. Now, uh, to get on with my point, when I started going through this argument a few months ago with uh, several other people who have studied market economy, uh, market economics and such, um, I started wondering, okay, well, just exactly what the hell is the economic calculation problem? So I looked up Mises and I found... Uh, a quasi-quote of his where it, basically his suggestion was no market system equals no pricing system equals no rational and efficient allocation of capital goods to their most productive use. Working from that quote or quasi-quote, uh, I started looking up the terminology. And so one of the first terms that I looked up was rational. And what exactly does he mean by rational? You know how we talk all the time about defining our terms. So, in my article, I defined my terms. In looking up rational, in the dictionary, what you find is that there's two basic definitions of rational. I mean, they're spread across several uh, subcategories, but your two basic definitions have to do, one, with um, with what we typically and commonly except as rational, which is logic, reason, sensible, sound, lucid, sane thought processes, right? The other is rational numbers, which we apply in mathematics. 
Mises, being an economist and working an awful lot with math, guess which part I think he went with. So then I started looking up efficient, and in efficient, I found the common understanding, which is uh, performing on a function that's best uh, possible manner with the least amount of waste in time, effort, materials, what have you. Right? So you're applying the most efficient uh, use of it, which is the most economical, the most savings use of your resources. The other possible definition was producing an effect, a cause as causative. So that's a possible term that he was trying to use. You know, it, it has an effect, right? And the effect that I would think that he was after was this perpetual growth engine that the current economic system, the uh, capital, capitalistic system seems to be. So then I looked at uh, capital goods, and what capital goods turn out to be are the machines and tools as well as the materials used in the production of those goods that they're talking about allocating. Um, but another uh, term that came up was capital, as in just capital, which is saved up wealth, whether it's by manufactured means or by monetary means. Which uh, actually goes back to what Devin was pointing out in uh, in the chat in the text when he said uh, what we trade in is capital and not or what we borrow is capital and not money as a nation. Um, so then I looked up productive, right? And what exactly does productive mean? Now productive worked out to be the most interesting word of them all in this. There is the common typical understanding of productive, which is having uh, having the power of producing generative, creative effects, producing readily, abundantly, and fertile, you know. So when we talk about economics and we talk about uh, productive economics, we talk about being able to produce abundance, particularly within the resource-based economy. What was he talking about? Well, there's another term, actually, that comes along with productive. In economics, producing or tending to produce goods and services that have an exchange value, specifically. So, basically, his whole argument and his whole uh, calculation problem that he put forth was all about supporting the market system and mathematically, being able to define it mathematically. As was pointed out earlier with the uh, missing part of that quote, that middle part that was missing. So there you go. That's my understanding of Mises in basic terms. He's using the economic calculation problem to say that, hey, we need to be able to calculate these things mathematically or else we don't know what the hell we're doing. And never mind true, rational, sane, logical thinking. Well, yeah, and he says, basically, I guess, um, to recap, uh, um, well, actually, let me go ahead and get a final statement from everybody on the call or give everybody the opportunity to say you know, anything. Um, I'm going to start with you, Chibi. Always me first, huh? Yeah. Uh, 
Well, uh, on what uh, Frank was just saying, uh, I think uh, at least within the system that Mises was working within and thinking about and in the context of his time and everything, uh, I wouldn't say that he got everything wrong. And, and of course, within uh, a market system as it was, as it stood in his day, it made a lot of sense. Uh, I don't... I don't know. I haven't studied it as much as as the rest of the people on the call probably. Not that particular topic, but it just seems to me that uh, it, it's a line of reasoning that was uninformed, or at least uh, by today's standards. Not to say that he he was some bad guy who got everything wrong or anything like that, but just that it, it lacked a lot of information. Uh, I mean, he he couldn't have known the difference in technology, and as you pointed out, communication technology especially, and it, a lot of the problems presented are just out of date. I, I think I agree with your primary point on that one. Aaron? Um, just to quickly go back to infinite wants, um, when I talk about this with uh, free market people, I can sometimes get them to agree that there are basic human needs that can be calculated and can be met, but then they'll always argue, but people, what? how are you going to determine people's subjective values of, say, um, fuchsia versus magenta on their iPod case or some like completely silly little argument like that? And they feel that price is necessary even to allocate the tiniest little um, nuances of want that are all basically fashion and advertising induced, like you talked about in your blog. So I just I just wanted to point that out because I don't think anyone mentioned it. They always refer back to, well, everyone has subjective values and they'll pick out like someone might want a slightly different computer and you can't produce you can't know which ones to produce. But it's a fallacy because. Um, there, the computer has a function, and if it's serving the need, it's if the people value the fact that they can get something that meets their needs, the fashion of it isn't going to matter so much. Well, yeah, but, I mean, it's like my friends always ask me, what kind of case do you want when they're building me a computer? And I'm always like, whatever is absolutely cheapest. I don't care at all. The fact that people spend money on special cases is so silly to me. That's a value thing. What were you going to say, Chibi? I was just going to point out that local and on-demand production is always an option as well for certain items where that, those sort of issues might be relevant, um, especially with the like if if we develop universal factories that can uh, create multiple types of goods um, locally. You need a different. You want a different color than your neighbor. I don't see that as being unreasonable, and, and nor does the price have anything to do with it. You right. want a blue case, you want a black, okay. What, so then figure out how to paint the damn thing yourself. <laughs> or, that, or that, there's that too, but I just mean that at least in the the way I understood it, uh, if you, you know, a new good comes out and you you can basically decide if you need one or not, or or your community needs one, depending on what kind of item we're looking at, and you can get together and decide uh, those little specifics about like what color you want the case to be before it's um, before it's produced, and so what's the problem? Well, that, that's a that raises a good point though, right? 
Because if you go out into the marketplace, you go shopping for an iPhone, right? And you go to the uh, Apple Store or the uh, or the um, what, what was it uh, AT and T store looking for an iPhone. You ask them what colors is it available in. You don't tell them. Well, I want it in this particular shade of fuchsia. <laughs> yeah, it's not like we have that today, exactly. You know, whereas the argument that a lot of these uh, market economists like to put forth is that, well, we actually get to vote on what we want produced and what colors and stuff we want it in and what features we want, and we vote with our dollars on what we want. And wait a minute. No, you don't. You buy what the hell is available to you. If it happens to be available in that color of blue that you wanted, then you can get it. Otherwise, you're SOL. You can complain all you want. And the manufacturer may decide to go ahead and make something in that color for you if there's enough demand for it. But otherwise, you're screwed. Well, and I keep coming back to the fact that when resources are made available to us, if you really want something different, then just make it your damn self. You know, that's that's really, I mean, it could be a project for yourself, especially in a circumstance where educating yourself, you know, is available. If you've got your damn heart set on a fuchsia freaking iPhone, research how to, you know, change your iPhone fuchsia. Don't expect the entire infrastructure of the planet to change so you can have a fuchsia iPhone. You know, <laughs> and that's that's one of the benefits that the freedoms that a resource-based economy creates. You know, there are a lot of things that I'd like to know how to build myself. I don't have the, you know, the ability to get educated to build them myself. They would be available in a resource-based economy. Um now, uh, system leaves people left out in that sense. Exactly. We were discussing that earlier. It just basically leaves the poor with this short straw every time. Uh, also, it obviously doesn't work. Even now, as there is a very large growing demand for clean energy from all different types of communities and people of all different ideas that you know, are agreeing we need cleaner energy and yet the infrastructure isn't being changed to meet that demand, right? Right. Well, and it's because it's not in the best interest of the people on top. Right. So obviously the price system isn't isn't working anyways, but you know, there was a point actually that I wanted to bring up about entrepreneurship before I forget was that one of the things that occurs to me that is is missing from this little uh equation is that these same people who who want us all to just start our own businesses to somehow compete with Walmart um, leave out the fact that in a non-fractional reserve system, it's going to be a hell of a lot harder to get a loan. When we have a limited money supply, which is what they think will fix everything, is one of their big things. Is like you keep saying that you know fiat currency is 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 an example of the market system in a free market. There is no fiat currency. I'm like okay. Well, all of the marvels and all of the you know entrepreneur stories that you're calling from, the virtually all of those people had to get a small business loan. And in a fractional reserve system, it's much easier to get those loans than it is to try to get those loans in a limited money economy. And it's also much easier for the people on the top to hoard the money to be sure that they have it. You know, um, and to be, and it's not really in their best interest to give you a loan that's going to hurt somebody else's business. You know. That, that in a limited currency system, you have more control over the money, via money flow, not less. Um, uh, usually, real quick, usually when people make the argument 
that somehow, you know, you bought for your dollars, I usually go, oh, okay. sorry about that. Um, yeah, anyways, going beyond that, um, the problem with the, cal- with the economic calculation problem, isn't it, it's not so much as a problem, um, it, it's just that, well, here's the thing, there's this thing in logic, usually, when, when you have arguments that are self-referring uh, points of reference is really where they, where they keep referring to one particular point and they never go beyond that. And and that's called circular reasoning. And that's what the economic calculation problem really is. It's not so much of a problem. It's, it, it's really it's just circular reasoning, and that's about it. Uh, but you know, it's yeah. I, I, I mean, the limited currency thing is definitely going to make it harder to, for businesses to definitely get loan. You know. And considering that they don't want these people don't want market, you know, the government to interfere in the market, they're obviously not going to be giving uh, uh, people who want to start up businesses a certain uh, certain transaction loan, like here they're doing it in California right now. They have a program where people can actually uh, petition the government for about a fifty thousand dollar loan so that they can start up a business. You know, so so since the government can't, can't do that really, especially in that in the car time to try to stimulate businesses, it's in, it, it, which is purely in the private sector, mind you, it's it's going to be coming harder, which is which is why which is why I really don't like the argument of uh, of you know oh a deregulated market will somehow fix everything when in fact it's just going to make problems worse. It just makes it easier for the people at the top to to get this started, which is one of the reasons why um, I I say to them you know basically is that how would they implement their system? Because there is no way that they could implement their system that would not be grossly in the favor of the people that are already on top. It would be like starting a game of Monopoly where two of the eight players have a million dollars and everybody else has a thousand. You know, how would that end up? Well, I guarantee you it wouldn't end up with the people with a thousand becoming people who have a million. You know, it just it, it doesn't work that way. There's no way to implement their system and change the money over to sound currency without taking from everybody else who already had it. Um, we're now down to like the last three minutes or so of the show. Uh, Frank and Al haven't had a chance to talk yet, so um, go ahead and um, make any final statements, Frank. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's one point. I mean, you... A lot of these people who like to make these arguments for sound currency and maintaining some kind of a market system, and particularly a free market system, they they don't seem to understand that what you would first have to do is play Robin Hood. You'd have to steal from the rich to give to the poor till there are no rich and there are no poor. And actually, everyone's poor in an, in another sense of the word. But But then you... You know, so you end up starting at ground zero with everyone, and you still end up with the same kind of shit. Yeah. Well, um, we actually had less time than I thought we did. Um, we're down to ninety seconds. Uh, go ahead and make a final statement, Al, and then I got and we're gonna have to end. Oh, finally! I thought <laughs> Bush. I thought Bush said that no child would be left behind, but you guys keep on leaving me behind on this show. God damn it! <laughs> <laughs> Well, go ahead, Al. So anyway, time is limited. Anyway, before before the time um, uh, ends up and I and I keep bitching about it, I, there, there, 
there was a guy talk, uh, asking how volunteering would work over long period, periods of time in the chat. And I'd say, what do you think uh, that mi millions of people is going to do with absolute, I mean, with, with, uh, with all the time in the world to do everything they, they, they want? Would you be surprised how many people, how many millions of people would actually care to volunteer for every kind of job, for every kind of activity, for any kind of teaching and, and medical assisting, you'd be surprised how much people would actually do if they actually had the time to do it today. So that's, that's my point for that aspect. And I always tell people to check out a Daniel Pink's study on what motivates people about that. Right. These so-called free marketeers keep on sounding so condescending towards any other proposed system, but they keep defending and standing up to a very old methodology, again, that wasn't aware at that time of how fast and efficient technology would advance in the future. So we, we have to keep insisting on this. This is an old-fashioned methodology, right? Right. Well, um, we're basically now out of time. Uh, thank you, everybody, for being on. Everybody say good night. Yeah. Good night. Good night, good night. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for having me on, Neil. No problem. Um, be sure to check out my website, v-radio.org. We've nearly reached our fundraising goals for the month. Remember, everybody, if everybody downloaded – or downloaded – everybody who downloaded the show gave like 2 to $3, it would be no problem at all. Thanks again, folks. I'll leave you some words from Doc Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.